Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another episode of Mpatient Myeloma Radio, a show that connects patients to myeloma researchers. We have a few ways for you to hear about Mpatient Myeloma Radio upcoming and past interviews. First, you can follow us on Twitter at Mpatient Myeloma, where we tweet about upcoming and past interviews. But we also have a new Mpatient Minute newsletter that organizes the interviews into one weekly post. Just go to www.mpatient.org homepage to subscribe. We have a full schedule with amazing myeloma doctors, and you don't want to miss the episodes. Speaking of which, we have an amazing myeloma doctor with us today, James R. Berenson of the Institute for Myeloma and Bone Cancer Research. We also have on the call one of his patients, John Forrester, who will be giving his introduction. So, John, why don't you go ahead? Thank you, Jenny. Dr. Berenson is the founder of the Institute for Myeloma and Bone Cancer Research, more commonly known as IMBCR, and has specialized in research related to myeloma and metastatic bone disease, both in the basic and clinical areas, for more than 25 years. He has been involved in many of the major breakthroughs that have brought new treatments for patients with these diseases, resulting in both an improvement in the length and quality of their lives. After receiving a Bachelor of Science with distinction from Stanford University, Dr. Berenson earned his doctorate in medicine from the University of California at San Diego. Dr. Berenson completed his internship and residency in internal medicine at the University of Utah Medical Center and fellowships in hematology-oncology at the University of California, L.A. He is certified by the American Board of Internal Medicine in both internal medicine and medical oncology. Dr. Berenson has a private practice that specializes in the treatment of patients with myeloma and metastatic bone disease. He is one of a very few myeloma research scientists who is actually on the front lines with patients every day in a clinical setting. He is also president and CEO of Oncotherapeutics, Inc., a corporation that conducts clinical trials related to myeloma and metastatic bone disease, as well as other cancers throughout the United States. Born and raised in Portland, Oregon, Dr. Berenson is married to the delightful Deborah. They have two children, Shira and Ariana. On a personal note, when I first met Dr. Berenson, I was in very bad shape. This was three and a half years ago, and I was on life support at Cedars-Sinai Hospital, really in a very near-death situation. Kidneys failing, no blood, ventilator sepsis, bone marrow almost completely filled with plasma cells. Yuck. Dr. Berenson put me on a custom treatment regimen, and that quickly knocked back the myeloma burden on my body, and I responded. To the amazement of most doctors there, I got well and walked out of that hospital. I would also like to say that Dr. Berenson was extremely kind to my family and actually gave them his cell phone number so that he could keep in touch with them during these scary weeks. And actually, all parents, all uh, patients have his cell phone number, which I think is rare for, for a doctor. I feel extremely blessed to be working with one of the world's top myeloma scientists and trailblazers, Dr. James Berenson. That care, integrated with the best holistic approaches available, truly has given me the very best of both worlds. If you saw me today, you would never guess there was a problem. Here to tell you more about his clinic and IMBCR, the research organization dedicated to finding a true and permanent cure for this disease, please welcome Dr. James R. Berenson. Thank you, John. Good afternoon. Yeah, Dr. Berenson, welcome. Well, thank Uh, you for having me. Would you like to start by sharing a little bit about your institute? Um, When did you start it, and what was your purpose in starting it? The institute just celebrated its 10th anniversary, and the idea was to develop new therapeutics from laboratory-based work from fresh tumor samples from our patients as well as already established cell lines. Uh, This work has led to the development of many new treatments, as well as identification of new pathways to target new treatments for. We've been very excited to be able to translate the work from the laboratory, the Institute for Myeloma and Bone Cancer Research, directly into the clinic through the conduct of clinical trials that are done not only by our own group, with many of our own patients participating, really on both ends. That is, giving us bone marrow to test, 
as well as being uh, patient or participants in the clinical trials, but as well at many sites throughout the United States through our clinical trials group called Oncotherapeutics. So we kind of do everything from nuts to bolts, that is from very basic research all the way to taking care of patients. And not only taking care of their needs for myeloma, but their overall needs. So we like to say that it's really about our patients having a complete life, not necessarily only a complete response, meaning the myeloma can't be found. Well, that's wonderful. It seems like with the Institute and Oncotherapeutics, it appears that you're kind of working towards this all-in-one approach. What advantage do you feel that that's giving you? Well, the advantages, uh, I can tell you, are from several points. One is the rapidity with which things can get done within this private institution are literally about tenfold faster than in a university setting or large institutional setting. Second, from seeing things happen in the clinic on our own individual patients, we can go back in the laboratory and try to see if these new combinations will actually prove useful in animal models, optimize them, and then bring them back from anecdotes or specific patient examples into large clinical trials. And we've actually done that on multiple occasions. And just in the last several months, we've identified two potential new drugs that can be used in novel combinations, and they're proving worthwhile both in the clinic and the lab. We've also been able to uh, develop a new serum marker through samples that have been banked on nearly 500 of our own patients over the last several years. And that seems to be a very useful marker now to follow myeloma. Perhaps will be useful to follow a lot of other cancers as well. We're working on that. Okay, wonderful. Would you like to give us an overview of your research in general and then we can kind of drill down into specifics? Sure. Well, our goal is to find treatment that will only impact the tumor and leave the rest of the body alone. And I like to quote my wife, who John mentioned earlier, Deborah, who's an actress and one of our board members, used to produce a lot of theater that she was in. And he used to say to her, it's about being more specific, not just about being more. So more action isn't necessarily better. We want more specific action on the cancer. And we take that to task in everything we do from the lab to the clinic. So we are trying desperately to develop therapies to leave the rest of your body alone and just attack the cancer. And in that regard, we've been working both on gene therapeutic approaches and antibody conjugate approaches, which are proving useful at this point in the lab, can't tell you yet in the clinic. We're very excited about the data on that. We've also tried to find new targets, and those are specific proteins or factors that drive the myeloma or make it survive or make it resistant to other treatments and trying to see if we can develop therapies to overcome that, and we're actually doing that now as well in the laboratory. Hope to be able to translate that in the clinic in the future as well. Okay, in terms of genetics, can you describe exactly what you're what you're targeting? Um, are there specific genes that you're looking for? Are you breaking things down into myeloma subtypes or genetic profiles? Well, our attempt is to be able to develop therapies that target a genetic marker that is common to all the cancer cells in the given patient. And that's a, based on work I did 30 years ago as a, as a fellow at Caltech in L.A. That's the antibody genes, the genes that make the abnormal antibody. And by targeting those, we're able to develop therapies that only will be released in cells that harbor that specific genetic marker, and that's only in the myeloma cells. Uh, on the antibody level, there are certain proteins that are very common to myeloma cells, and by targeting those with a toxin or an effective drug hooked onto the antibody, which is bound to the cancer cell, the concentration of the drug can be thousands of fold higher than that are released, that's released within the cancer cell compared to the rest of the body, and thus those toxins, which are highly effective at killing the myeloma, leave the remainder of the body alone. So there's a protein-based approach specific and then a genetic-based specific approach. And are these considered immunotherapy approaches? 
Well, one is, um, one's immunotherapeutic. It's an antibody-based conjugate. The other is more of a genetic approach. Uh, we certainly are interested in other immunomodulatory effects of many of the drugs, such as the drugs like Revlimid, Thalidomide, Pomelis. These drugs are immunomodulatory as well and seem to make perhaps other antibody therapies work better. We're seeing evidence with some of the new therapies that are in development that Revlimid can make them look better. Hmm. And and can we subtype myeloma at this point? And kind of well, I know you, we can mm-hmm. substitute. We can subtype it based on genetic markers. Uh, you can argue what that means clinically right now because most myeloma these days uh, is actually able to respond regardless of what we formerly called high risk disease. And the small numbers that are, those who harbor what's called P53 or 17P minus, that is, they're missing part of chromosome 17, we really can't tell patients what to get to make them do better. That's the problem. Okay. Uh, Do you think we'll be able to get to that point? Yeah, I think so. I think with time we will. The problem is the therapy is changing so rapidly that prognostic factors that may have been relevant even several years ago may no longer be relevant as we develop new treatments. That is the problem. And a question on that. I guess there seems to be a blast of new therapies coming out. It looks like there are HDAC inhibitors and immunotherapy types, and it just seems like there's a whole slew of new therapies. So how do, and this question, I guess, relates to any new therapy. Without long-term data on therapies, on new therapies, how do you know if a new one ultimately have better results than an existing therapy over time. How do you how do you balance that as a researcher? Well, it is a balancing act. You're absolutely right. So we don't, unfortunately, know long-term outcomes in a lot of new drugs, such as carfilzomib or pomelis, and we have to guess based on drugs that are similar. In the case of carfilzomib, it's velcate. In the case of pomelis, it's revlimid. But we don't really know that something untoward may happen in a good or bad way with these drugs. So we're also learning that resistance to one drug doesn't mean you're resistant to a drug in a similar drug class, and that wasn't what we were taught back in medical school because these drugs have a lot of off-targeted benefits that make them work in situations where, say, another drug in the same class does not. Hmm. Okay. And um, can you do you want to go into any detail in any research studies that you're currently working on? Well, sure. In the uh, in the laboratory, we're working on a factor called TRAS six, and we're showing it can make a lot of other drugs work better. It's involved in the same pathway that Velcade and some of the other drugs work, and uh, it's astounding that uh, how much better the drugs work in the face of this blocking this factor. Uh, we are also working on a new serum marker called B-cell maturation antigen, which is shed off the myeloma cells into the blood, and it can be used to follow the disease. And we now have recent data to suggest it may contribute to the immune deficiency, which is the hallmark of myeloma as well. And we also have very good data on uh, several other new targets uh, in myeloma as well. Uh, Some of those I can't mention because I'm limited by uh, what our agreements are with companies, uh, but it's pretty exciting. The antibody conjugate work, some other combination therapies that we're doing in the lab. Looks very exciting. We're actually able able mm -hmm. to, for the first time, cure myeloma completely in our animals with some of the antibody conjugates. We've never seen that before. Well, that's stunning. And I'd like to talk about that. If, If you think a cure is coming, and where do you think it's coming from? Um... I don't know if I'm going to say, I don't want to say with certainty that a cure is coming immediately. I think that uh, we're moving in that direction. People's lives are certainly being extended, uh, but I can't tell you with good certainty when we're going to have, quote, a cure. I think we certainly are offering patients a lot more options than ever before. I think that's really good news, really good news. Yes, it's great news <laughs> for all of us. Now, I saw that you uh, work in stem cell or are working on stem cell research, kind of how the myeloma begins. And can you talk a little bit about that, about 
how that how it starts and then what you're doing to target it at its inception. Yeah, um we are trying to identify I like to call it the ever ready battery cell, the cell that keeps giving the disease and see if we can develop therapies that will eliminate that. Um we have been working on that for some time trying to subset cells from the myeloma clone from some of our patients and see which types of markers identify a small group of cells within the whole clone of myeloma that a patient harbors that keep on growing in the mice. And this is really an important clone uh, in order to eventually try to cure the myeloma because you've got to get rid of those ever-ready battery cells. Right, they keep generating... Um. Let's see. Do you want to talk about any other studies in particular? Um, yeah, well, we are doing a lot of work with the both Palmolist and then also the Carfilzomid, both in the clinic and the lab. We're able to show something, I think, very important with these drugs, and that is that you can overcome resistance in one drug class with another. So we've had you've, a lot of people think of... Uh, for example, carfilzomib and Velcade is both proteasome inhibitors, so if you're resistant to one, you're resistant to the other, and clearly that's not true in the clinic or the lab. So we're able to really increase the number of options for patients as we begin to say, nope, just because you're resistant to drug in one class doesn't mean you won't be very responsive to the other. The other thing we're beginning to look at is sequencing drugs and what order drugs should be given in and whether, in fact, adding drugs in is commonplace after you fail something to add more drugs together, is that really the right approach or should you withdraw one drug? You know, we just don't know. And so your studies are trying to figure out which combinations work the best and and in what order. What order to give them. uh And then how many to give at one time. Because it seems like a lot of the research is is let's give three or four at one time. Um, And you're thinking that that might not be the right approach? Yeah, I don't necessarily think that we are doing a a service to patients by pummeling them with more drugs. You know, we just we just don't know. Yeah, we we may be we may be better off by using less drugs than giving lots and lots of drugs together. And we we don't do that. You see, what we do is we we figure that if one is good, three must be better, and three at maximum dose is better. And although that may be a short-term gain, in the long term that may do a disservice of the patient as their bone marrow begins to have problems and other things come up. You know, you got to be very careful. Well, can you speak to that, the com- uh, combination and how it affects the bone marrow? Yeah, I mean, you permanently damage the bone marrow, and there are four patients. Uh, my assistant's running a marathon tomorrow, and I like people to run marathons and actually finish the race. So that means running 10-minute miles may be better than 5-minute miles because you'll actually finish all 26. We have to think about the long-term view now in myeloma. This is no longer a sprint race. People are no longer hanging off the cliff and falling off like they were back in the 90s. They have a lot of time to think about what they're going to do, and they don't necessarily have to be in big rushes that we put them in. Yes, well... I know a myeloma patient, Gary Peterson, has created a website with survival statistics, and I encourage patients to take a look at that at www.myelomasurvival.com. And your five-year results are excellent. So how are you able to achieve these results compared to others using maybe the same combinations of therapies? Well, I think what we try and do is not have a myopic view of of uh, this disease, we try to have a more expansive view and look at the big picture uh, and try to recognize that there are lots of options. I saw a patient day in clinic, literally he's had myeloma 30 years, and we've been taking it slow with him over 30 years. He's had active disease. He just hasn't had in myeloma. We have other, many other examples like that of patients who are 20, 25 years out uh, we've gotten multitudes of different regimens. We have patients who've had up to 25 different prior treatments. So it's very uh, depressing when I read 
reports, usually outside the U.S., where patients have given no second options, let alone third, fourth, and tenth options. And, uh, you know, there was a recent paper appearing from a large study suggesting that patients who were refractory to a Velcade, which meant they were really stable, not necessarily actually refractory in my view, which means progressing, and had seen Revlimid would die within a short period of time, and I think that's based on the fact they're not given options. You know, you, you have to have options. I recently have been dealing with a Canadian patient. It's very sad because the number of options up there is so limited. This patient cannot even receive carfilzomib and uh, can't even get lenalidomide or pomalist. I mean, it's very frustrating. So uh, the survival is related to the creativity and the pers- the, pers- pers- the ability of the uh, oncologist to persevere with uh, trying new things. And a lot of people aren't willing to do that. I am. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. I, I like to say keep your eye on the ball, and the ball's the patient. It really should be. And if there if there's a you know a specific list of of medicines that are available for myeloma patients, how do you give them more options? If you is there a specific just, list? Well, I don't know Velcade, you know Palmolist and Carfilzomib and and the immunomodulatory drugs. Right. And so, I mean, there are well, standard those, those, myeloma drugs, drugs, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, well, I would tell you standard dose and standard schedule is not necessarily our standard because I would tell you many of these doses are way too high, way too toxic, and do not allow patients to stay on therapy and certainly do not allow them a future so that they can tolerate more regimens down the line, which they will need. They will not be cured in most cases today. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to have a good long life and that something else isn't going to work. And then with a patient who comes in with a slower-growing myeloma versus a more active or more high-risk, I guess you'd consider it, myeloma, how does your how does your approach differ between those two different Well, I think types? we over-treat today about 80% of myeloma. Um, I think perhaps we could pummel it for a few months and then back off. We don't generally do that. We just keep pummeling away. Um, I do believe there shouldn't really be drug holidays and patients should stay on therapy to control disease. Uh, I am a believer in that, but I'm a believer that you should give therapy that allows people to live their life. patient just was in clinic today on a carfilzomib interesting trial to try and see if we slow it down, will it actually be better tolerated? He's doing quite fine. Fine enough, the day after, two weeks ago, he went to 14,000 feet in the Sierras, and in about two weeks, he's going off to Himalayas to try to get to 18 or 20,000. Uh, so we we like those stories. We like people to be able to have their lives. Yeah, that's everyone, patients want to be able to do that. And sometimes, I know um, I had both, combination therapies and transplant, and, you know, there are pros and cons of both. <laughs> so sometimes it's tough being on those combination therapies. Right. That is so, right, and I think sometimes you may not necessarily need all of the drugs or certainly all of them at the dose or schedules. For example, we showed several years ago that Doxel is a very active drug, used probably by less than 10% of oncologists treat myeloma. Uh, And because side effects in the past were fairly dismal, but just changing the schedule around a little bit and giving less drug on a more often basis makes it it an extremely well-tolerated drug. So when someone comes in, how do you choose upfront therapy with trying to figure out what the best mix might be for them? Well, I think it's not – I don't want you to tell you, tell you today, we unfortunately in myeloma have done studies like in childhood leukemia and to do risk-based therapies with long-term outcome. You know, people talk about how this is a very logical thing that's done. That just is not the case. It's not really based on clinical trials. Uh, you know, there isn't a lot of clinical trials done in the upfront setting that tell us how intense you should go. And even trials that suggest survival advantages – are based largely on data generated outside the U.S. where the patient didn't really get a second chance or certainly not much of one. It's pretty easy to show an advantage of one trial 
combination of another when you go over Niagara Falls when you're done, whether that's relevant at all to a U.S. group of patients, you could really argue. Hmm. And going back to what you said about the, your Canadian patients, for patients that live out of the country, what um, what do you recommend to them? Leave. Or what would you recommend? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's very frustrating. They they have to be very persistent with their attending physicians, but that doesn't necessarily make them be able to give drugs that are not approved in that country and totally unavailable in that country. And is it similar with patients around the globe that you've that you've seen, or is this a case? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's why I find it so folly to suggest the data from some uh, country with lesser uh, medical resources is relevant to patients in highly sophisticated LA or Beverly Hills. They may not; those results may not be at all relevant to my group of patients. I mean, the bottom line is: is how long do patients live and with what quality? And I think we do a very poor job of putting together data that looks at that. Of course, people would argue that people who live in more affluent parts of the world get better care, and I would say so be it. It just shows that better care gets better outcome. They may also argue that people who live in more affluent parts of the world uh, uh, can afford to get that care. They, they may argue also that we select for a what we call lead time bias because we see a wealthier population we see the disease in an earlier time point. We call that lead time bias. And therefore, maybe they're just living longer because we've identified the disease earlier. I don't actually believe that. I believe there may be a little of that, but not much. Hmm. Now, with your own data, um, are you able to, to because you have samples and you have um, a data pool to pull from, um, what kind of advantage does that help you with when it comes to looking or, or I guess I'm. I want to keep saying subtyping, but I don't really mean that. What I mean is just taking a look at your data and making conclusions based on that data. Well, I think that's you're right. That's what we need to do. But the problem is we haven't really done studies to say you're going to get four drugs at full dose and you're going to get one drug and we're going to add in drugs at lower dose. Nobody's been willing to make that giant leap across the Grand Canyon. Because we have all these great new drugs, people go, oh, we'll just throw more of them at the patient. And I'm not necessarily thinking, that's right. I would say, take your time. Take a breath. You know, don't just stand, don't just run, run around. You can stand there a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And try, to, try to delay it? That's okay. So that that's something we need to think about a lot more these days. And I also think the disease is often treated for relapses that are imaginary. They're laboratory phenomenon. Perfect example is a patient in today, Mary Kay, came in having had labs two weeks ago and suggested her protein had returned. Well, the labs were repeated, and guess what? There was no return. It was a lab error. Oh, wow. <laughs> so if you don't like your labs, just repeat them. I tell my patients often you'll like them better a second time. <laughs> Much better off you are by waiting than jumping into something new. Very yeah, well, often that's the case. With that, let's talk about minimal residual disease for a minute because I know a lot of people are talking about that and what that means. So in in the work that you're doing, can you talk to us about what that what Yeah, that we means did all you, the early studies on that. In fact, in the 90s, what we did is my identical twin brother invented a device called the CellPro or Separate device, which took stem cell product and was able to select for healthy stem cells and then let all the myeloma cell go away, and we had to measure the amount of tumor contamination. And it was an FDA-based study, so we had to go by what they wanted us to do, which meant we had to identify the tumor cells down to one in a million normal cells, which was pretty tight. It was very laborious, very expensive. Unfortunately, most of what's called MRD today is not MRD. It's not minimal residual disease. It's actually minimally effective residual disease because they don't really measure the minimal disease very accurately. So I have a hard time with assays that try to tell me they can measure it 
the same in each patient when there's no data to support that. And some of the funnier studies are ones in which they can measure the protein, but they can't find any of the myeloma using MRD-based assays, which shows you how lousy their MRD assay is. So as a patient, how do you know if you're getting a good MRD assay or a good um, baseline of testing? You know, we, we did an interview with Dr. Langren, and he was saying that there's a 100 times variance in some of the testing that's done, and so especially cytogenetics testing. So how does a patient know if they, the they lab results know. are... They're not going to know, unfortunately. Um, this is very sophisticated stuff. I don't think it means very much right now. I really don't. I mean, unlike my sister with APL, acute promyositic leukemia, cured with arsenic, by the way, which works for myeloma and vitamin A, and my cousin Ken, one of Brian Drucker's first Gleevec patients 10 years ago, who truly are in PCR negative CRs, I don't think we really see that in myeloma today if you really get down to brass tacks and can measure it. Remember, this is also a spotty disease. So the attainment of a CR from bone marrow in the left hip doesn't mean in the right rib it also would be gone. It's a spotty disease. Okay, so what do you recommend to patients in terms of getting tested? I don't recommend they do MRD outside of a clinical trial today. Hmm. I don't think it tells you anything that's useful. First of all, even if it uh told you something was there, they couldn't tell you what to do about it that would mean something either way. And um, how about other testing, like either gene array sampling or cytogenetics? Is the MRD testing cytogenetics testing? Is that what that is? No, cytogenetics is an attempt to identify specific chromosome abnormalities that either predict responsiveness to drugs or predict your overall outcome. That is, either how long you're going to respond to that agent or how long you're going to live. And the problem is this is a quickly changing atmosphere right now, environment, if you will, because of the rapidity with which combinations and new treatments are being made. And things that were prognostic several years ago no longer are, and I suspect that's the same now in the carfilzomid pomalist era, and we don't even know what those are. I would tell you if you're missing part of chromosome 17, that's not good, but that's probably about 10% of myeloma today. And the problem with that is, even if you're missing it, these people are told they should have high-dose therapy, but the outcome in that group is awful. Yeah, I know that's a not a good marker. Um, so there's cytogenetics testing. There's MRD testing, which you don't recommend unless it's in a trial setting. There's right. imaging, imaging testing. Is there any other kind of testing that you recommend that you look at? Well... You know, we're trying to develop new markers like our own, but outside of a clinical trial, I would tell you at this point, uh, garden variety following the uh, usual protein electrophoretic testing, the quantitative immunoglobulin, the free light, 24-hour urine, that certainly is the way to monitor the disease. In terms Mm -hmm. of predicting what you should get as a therapeutic, nobody's done a study looking at lower high-risk patients with differing treatments. So even though people have tried to develop risk-adapted therapeutic guidelines, there's no outcome data to support that one way of doing it's better than another. Hmm. Okay, so we well, propose those kinds of trials, but most companies are not very interested in those, and it's too expensive to do those without corporate support. Hmm. Now, I was um, having another interview, and, and we were discussing federal funding for research. Because you have the Institute... Um, have you felt that it, they were saying it's been anemic and had dropping and it's significantly impacting the, our ability to do medical research? Do you agree? And what's your, been your experience with your institute? Well, I would hardly agree. And the problem is much research today is under the guidelines and the umbrella of the companies. And although, you know, they certainly want to do good by patients, they have their own agendas. And that may not necessarily be in the greater good, and uh, you have to be careful about that. But, you know, we're shrinking the federal, and so therefore we're having to run to the companies that have myeloma drugs. And they certainly don't want to hear from me, well, we'd like to compare using less of your drug or not your drug at all. 
that isn't necessarily in the best interest of their shareholders, so you have to be careful. But it does limit our ability to do things. And many of the time, they're very averse to risk. They're risk-averse. They don't want to try new things. They basically want to reinvent many of the things that are already out there. It's frustrating. So how do you approach how do you approach risk? Because I, in terms of, you you know, you have incremental innovation, which is some of these drugs are getting better and better incrementally. Then you have disruptive innovation, which is looking at something from a whole different aspect or area. Um, how do you approach that? Well, we try to do both. So we do try to think outside the box. We also try to tweak things that already exist and see if we can make them better tolerated and work a little bit better. But the true test is really within a clinical trial, and unfortunately, there's just not a lot of trials, in my view, that tell us with absolute certainty whether one thing's better than the next. Um, there usually aren't enough patients enrolled, uh, or the endpoints are really mushy. Recent example is a myeloma trial in which patients got a different treatment up front than on maintenance. It's impossible to interpret what in one arm they got you know, one uh they got one treatment up front and they got maintenance, the other arm they got a different treatment up front and a different maintenance and how can you interpret that data in terms of long term outcomes and trying to claim maintenance of one type was better than another when they got different inductions up front. We see a lot of port trial design. I I mean if we could stop that at the beginning I think we would be very helpful to perhaps more efficiently, efficiently using patients on trials. And how do we do that? How do we well, improve the Well, a lot the of these trials, trials unfortunately, are done outside the U.S. And again, those trials results are limited by the options available to the patient after they fail. So it's pretty easy to show an advantage of A, B, C over A, B. That C is great when added to A, B. When after that, you get nothing else. Whereas in the most of the rest of the world, you may get C and D and all the way to Z combinations. So it's become pretty complicated. My job is to keep patients, as I said, in the marathon race. Now, sometimes you don't have the luxury of time. You have to throw the Hail Mary pass and hope something works. We've been seeing more of that because the deal is now there's more drugs out there. So we're seeing a lot more Doug Flutie Hail Mary passes than we saw that work than we saw even five, ten years ago. Because the drugs have improved in, in effectiveness? Yeah, we know how to use them better. Mm. We were scared catty, scaredy cats to use anything with Velcade when we did the summit trial because we used it alone. And now I've used it with everything you could think of and more, and the same has been now true with Carfilzum in the last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw about 40 open Carfilzum trials on yeah. clinicaltrials.gov. Right. We're doing about four right now ourselves, yeah. Well, before we turn it over to caller questions, I'd like to ask the question, what can patients do to help you with your research? Um, well, if they are interested in giving us blood samples for looking, for example, at our new marker, um, if they're interested, if they're having a bone marrow for a clinical reason, then some extra bone marrow can be sent and we can study it for the effectiveness of some of the new drugs and combinations in our lab. Um, And we can also encourage them to participate in trials that may be available through their local doctors. I saw a woman today who's been on several clinical trials, and she's kind of getting tired of it. And I'm like, you know, this trials that we're doing now uh, will hopefully help a lot of patients because the trials she's already been on have helped a lot of patients. The trial, in fact, she may be just coming off of was a very seminal trial to show that people that fail one proteasome inhibitor can actually respond beautifully to the other one without changing anything else in the combination treatment. And now we're going to do the same kind of work with the uh, pomalidomide product. Well, that's the hope of this series is that by um, helping patients understand more about the clinical trials that are being run and how they can participate, I don't think we've even come close to tapping the impact that patients can have by participating in clinical trials in a, in a greater percentage. I don't even think we've thought about that before as patients, that we can make such a big difference. But I, I'm guessing we can. 
Okay. Um, John, why don't we see if first you have a question. Do you have any questions that you'd like Dr. Berenson to ask? Uh, yeah, yeah, my question is, Dr. Berenson, you're well known uh, as, a, as a scientist and doctor who, who does not advocate stem cell transplantation. And I, this is a question every patient faces sooner or later, but it's nice to hear it directly from you, your, your rationale and philosophy regarding stem cell transplants. Well, I think that, John, the reasons for that I kind of made a little bit clear in the last 40 minutes, and that is got to stay in the race. And mm-hmm. back in the 90s when my brother was inventing his device for transplant, the patients had no options. They had transplant, and that was about it. In the last dozen years, we have a slew of new drugs and dozens of combinations. And if your body's been really pummeled by a transplant procedure, it's very hard for you to tolerate a lot of those future therapies, not only your bone marrow, but perhaps your lung, your heart, your other organs. And although I would say to you that transplants may be a home run in 3% of patients, 3, not 30, and I do have a couple of those examples in my own clinic, transplant in the days of the 90s we were doing them. But number one, I would say that 3% actually get worse from the transplant. It makes the disease worse. And 94, it really didn't help, and all it did is cause injury. But it turns out today I have patients that have been on Velcade-based regimens for that dozen years as well that are still in complete remission that never got transplanted. And the deal with them is they have a much healthier body to go through therapies that they may need as we find the cure, if you will, or the cures, which may be the case. Uh, I would also say to you that we've also used often a surrogate for a longer life is the time to progression of the disease. And if you mash the bone marrow marker down below detectable, you may be at a place you're in a, quote, complete remission. You're certainly not cured in most circumstances. So it may take longer for that marker to reappear than the guy who's got measurable marker to show progression, where you can measure going, say, from one to one and a half. Whereas the guy who's below zero, it may take longer for that to reappear doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't relapsing. We also know mm-hmm. that the randomized trials that have shown benefit, most of them were done before we had the new drugs. In fact, all of them were. The one recent one that's been done from the Italian group doesn't show any advantage to high-dose therapy over uh, even melphalan, prednisone, and revelmid, which looks to be no better than melphalan and prednisone without revelmid maintenance. So even the post a uh, new drug era, we're not really seeing, especially in the post-new drug era, we're not really seeing benefit in an overall population in favor of transplant. And I certainly need believe people need to stay in the marathon. You know, so I'm not going to treat 100 patients to benefit three. It's like going to Vegas and playing the roulette table and think number 38 is going to be yours when the other 37 are likely to come up. And one of those 37, by the way, may be one number that makes your disease worse. So I don't recommend transplant for anybody anymore. Okay. Okay, thanks for your question, John. Okay, sure. if if um if you would like to, we'd like to open up the discussion to call our questions. So if you'd like to ask Dr. Berenson a question about his research, please press 1 on your keypad. Okay, we have a question from phone number 992. Four, five, six, eight. Hi, okay, this is uh, Gary Peterson. Can you hear me? Yes. Yep, we can hear you, Gary. Hi, hi, Dr. Berenson and uh, Jenny. I would like to say uh, thank you for uh, putting uh, together this program. I know it's a great educational opportunity for the myeloma patient community. And and Dr. Berenson, you've uh, become somebody who. Uh, uh, I respect and uh, and find has uh, provided uh, some of the best survival rates uh, in the world. So we're about uh, to and update done... those in the next couple of months. Next few months, you'll have updated data. Yeah. Well, well it's already the best. So is it better than the best? <laughs> it's going to be better than the best. It will be even better. Well, I can tell you. Well, that's fantastic. Now you've done this without transplant. You've talked about that and. Um, You've also I don't well I don't uh, want to tell you Gary that none of those patients have not not everyone in that group is some of those people have had a transplant. I mean these are all everybody I've seen so uh, some of those came in from elsewhere, you know. 
it seemed, seemed to me that over time, you know, you, you're kind of at one end of the spectrum for treatment and, um, you know, probably Little Rock is at the other extreme along with uh, the people who do uh, the aloe transplants. And uh, I thought over time, you know, it was becoming more and more that people were kind of uh, getting away from transplants. And I would say in the last two years or so, I, I you know, I, you know there, there seems to be more and more people kind of going back to uh, saying that there is an advantage to one transplant and even dual transplant and that this has a survival advantage. And... Uh, how, how do you know, rationalize on, this on, conflict? I don't know where that's coming from. There's no data to support that. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, the highest complete remission rates are from the carfilzomib, revlimid, dex trials. Um, they're not even transplant trials. Of course, the transplants would argue if you had a transplant on the back end, they do it even better. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting. So is it? Is it? Ha, ha, you know, I. You know, I'm, I'm frankly confused a little bit, and, and you know, maybe because I don't know uh, the information as much as you do. But it just seemed like, the, you know, like for example, the Duryes and and those people are kind of going more towards, uh, uh, you know, away from just using drugs and back to um, going for transplant and maintenance. You know, going to more is better as opposed to yours, which is less is best. So. You know, I, I well, guess I'm getting what, conflicting messages. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand. I mean, if you have no options, you better get a transplant, <laughs> right? Because you're, you're not going to get all the different options you're going to get in this clinic. And I think the myopic view of many people does not allow them to give all the options we find available for our patients. We're coming up with new concoctions almost monthly. And I won't tell you some of those have been proven in trials, but... You see patients who've seen everything you can think of, and you try something novel, and they have beautiful responses. And now you know you're on to something. Sometimes it's hard to convince companies to do a trial because they really have a limited agenda. My agenda is to keep patients alive longer with better quality, and I think we're doing a darn good job of it. Uh, well, it and I would certainly your numbers. Yeah, I mean the proof is in the numbers, and uh, I and I think we we do great, and I think. You know, it's not only the numbers, it's having patients like uh, Jeffrey going off to climb, you know, the Himalayas next month. I mean, those kind of people are my patient who uh, just did the Leadville bike race or, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, I I think you you have to think about people having a life. They need to have their lives. That's very important. Which leads me to another question. And uh, I happen to know that uh, one of one of your patients was treated extensively with like Velcade, Revlimid, and Dex, with little to no uh, success. And you did your your mix and match magic, I'll call it, and finally found the magic bullet that had done the trick and uh, and made a big impact on his uh, in his condition. Now, why does this work for you, where others, you know? seem to give up well i think because um oncologists in general have the rather limited view that if drugs don't work uh like velcade say with cytoxan they're not going to work with any other agent certainly not the case and the same is true the other way around that patients who fell velcade won't respond to the drug in the same class Carfilzomid, not the case. We've seen the same thing now with Revlimid failures, and you would think they wouldn't respond to Palm, but they do. So these drugs, even though they may look alike and supposedly in the lab hit the same intracellular targets, they don't. It's much more complicated. So they might be not not necessarily just next-generation drugs. No, there's a lot of other off-target things going on here they're very hopeful for patients but the problem is uh it's very hard to take risk and i did my early work with carl sagan the astronomer and i'm <laughs> like to think out of this world and i think you you if you can do that you're going to make lives longer and better for your patients but you have to be willing 
to not follow the cookbook. I can do that because I think myeloma only. It's hard to Dr. Smith or Dr. Jones who sees colon, lung, breast, prostate, and a little myeloma to be confident enough to try an alternative regimen for a myeloma patient without a little bit of uh, me pushing them along, coaxing them to do that. Yeah, I think having a myeloma specialist in your corner, and Gary says this too, is really critical. I really do now. wasn't so critical 10 years ago. Didn't have that many options. Today, it is absolutely required. And I mean somebody's in the clinic. There are a lot of purported experts, including names you've mentioned in the last hour, who don't really see patients. It's a lot different being in the clinic. I was at UCLA for nearly two decades and was a full professor, ran the heme malignancy program there. But I wasn't really in clinic very much. I basically had fellows and residents and interns who took care of patients. It's a lot different now. I understand the nuances much better of taking care of patients, dealing with issues with respect to their labs, side effects of their drugs, what it means for them, and what they really go through. Well, thank you very much. And thanks, Gary, also for your questions. Okay, we have one more question. Thank you, Jenny. Okay, go ahead with your question. Okay, the phone number is 949-5572. Go ahead with your question. Oh, thank you. Uh, This has been an awesome interview to listen to and really appreciated uh, Gary's comments a few minutes ago. He asked actually a couple of questions I had. Um, But, uh, but, but Doctor, I I do appreciate your taking the time, and I love your approach. I love the, the... the comment that you made about you know taking risk and not following the cookbook, but so I mean that just you know sends you know chills down just by thinking about you know taking a patient-centered approach. But doesn't I have two questions? And the first one is, isn't that kind of against you know most doctors won't do that because it's you have this code of ethics that says do no harm, and and, and doing no harm it's follow the cookbook. It's follow the the proven processes that have been established out there, and, and so. Um, well, all you have to do is look at the number of people who have neuropathy from drugs that you know about, because they're used at standard dose and schedule, and then say, wait a second, these people's qualities of lives are affected negatively. Maybe there's a better way to do it, and then to actually study it and find out, yes, there is, and then you begin to start being more cavalier about doing things and thinking outside the box or drugs like doxel causing a lot of mucositis and swollen and red and blistery hands and feet and looking at different ways to do it and see the outcomes every day in clinic of people that are healthy and happy with drugs that are reported to be just devastating and I've seen it with side effects Uh, and then to be willing to take patients who've We've seen everything and say, wait a second, maybe there's something else we can try and not give up. Now, I'm not going to say to you, and Gary knows this, John knows this, that we're we're perfect. We're not. We lost a patient yesterday, a very nice man, although he'd been been even more out there with what he wanted to do and was many times resistant to, to even us treating him. Everybody's got to do it their own way, but, you know, and I remember a recent patient who we had failed on and had gone elsewhere and gotten a few more months out of uh, more convent. Well, it wasn't necessarily conventional myeloma, but conventional chemo drugs. Uh, we're not always right. We make we make mistakes. Uh, there may be people who can do it better for patients than I can do it. I'm not going to tell you that's not the case, but uh, we do our best. We keep our. We would like to say keep our eye on the ball, and the ball is the patient. It's not <laughs> our our CV, resume, or pocketbook. You know, I mean. We try to keep keep that in mind when we take care of people. That's a, I mean, that's a, an admirable and a gutsy approach, and I, I commend you for it. Question I have around, as you're thinking about the future of research, the cost of mapping the human genome is approaching $1,000, and there's a race to get it down to $100. How how does this, this um, ability to map the genome and understand with the, you know, as opposed to looking through a fuzzy window, we're looking now at, with, at a through a microscope, and that the, the detail of specificity we can understand the 
the, the genetic profile of a patient and their disease. How is that how is that affecting now or could affect this disease? Can we get to customize how far off we are are we from customized applications for our patients? Well, unfortunately, we're pretty far off because we're not willing to take the next step, and that is to incorporate it within trials with different regimens based on some of these profiling. And it's a long process, and they did it in childhood ALL before we even had any of this high and low risk and have a lot of cured kids today, fortunately, who have brains that are now intact, whereas in the early days in the 50s and 60s, we squashed a lot of these kids' minds with too much therapy. Uh, We haven't been able to do that with myeloma, uh, we haven't been willing to do it. We come up with risk-adapted therapy approaches based on no outcome data. Uh, there's data from some groups that actually suggest that the patients you should hit the hardest are those with the lowest risk because those are the ones you can actually you know, cure or, or lead to the best results. Exactly the opposite of what you've been told in some of these guidelines. So, you know, we need outcomes measurements. Outcomes are survival, progression-free, or better yet, overall. We don't have them. We just report. See, one of the problems with the whole system, the system has no ability to delay gratification. The drug company wants my CR is bigger than your CR, or my CR is faster than your CR to appear. And that's not what the patient wants to know, because they know they have a long survival in most cases. So they want to be climbing Mount Kilimanjaro like this gentleman did, or they want to be climbing the Great Wall of China. Uh, and they want to be doing that 10 years out, not 10 weeks out from their diagnosis. So, I mean, I think you have to be very careful what the outcome measurements are because what the club of drug companies that may be true in the academic setting may not be what the patients care about. That is a very, very important point. And uh, I, I'm talking against the dogma, but, you know, as I say, my, I keep my eye on the ball and it's the patients. If, if you're gonna, but if you're going to increase the, the outcomes, then you have to include the patient, which includes patient-reported outcomes, and, and close that feedback loop with the patient. And it, unless we have the, the patients participating in, in, in this in a patient-reported outcome system, there's really no way to close that loop, you know, cost-effectively, at least in, 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 in our life. Yeah, but, but who's requiring long-term outcome measurements? You see, that's one of the problems. And, well, and yeah. are the it's, outcomes it's, it's not a, comparable a in a country where there is no second option to my patients who get 25 options? Can I take data from a trial in Eastern Europe where the patient is told either you go on the trial, you get nothing, to my patients who have free choice in the U.S. and in, in Los Angeles? You know, you've got to be very careful the setting trials are done in, what the outcomes are, the group they're treating, what the clinical setting is, all that is very critical. Just, just the last comment to that point. Because since I've been on, this, on the show, I looked up the myelomasurvival.com, um, Gary's blog here, and I've, and I've looked at the SEER data of the different trials, and in the comparison of the SEER data, um, you're, you're showing 89.7% survival after five years, and so you're doing something different. Now, what you're doing in context of the patients needs to get out there, but how do you, how do you deliver that, that information, something that you're doing? Maybe it's maybe something the patient's doing on the outside, and they're taking Coumadin or something, and that's just affecting well, could the treatment. Be. Could be. I agree. There are a lot of things they do additively that may contribute to survival. There are you know, drugs that we now know have anti-myeloma effects, drugs like Celebrex, metformin, the statin. I mean, who knows how these all play in? I agree with you. And, you know, people don't want to hear about that, but I think all this is important. The other thing you have to be very careful when you look at outcomes data from some of the tertiary centers, and I won't name names, is they don't really, they they actually have to have patients that are wealthy enough and good enough quality of life shape to come visit their center. That doesn't necessarily represent a population in general, number one. Number two, they measure outcome measurements on patients they don't really care for. So when I give you outcome measurements for our patients, which we are now doing on our own group, we're going to be giving outcome measurements on patients I actually take care of. Because I shouldn't be taking credit for the patient I see once a year who flies down from Oregon or flies over from Chicago. I'm not really taking care of them. In addition, and equally important to point out, is that those patients – 
at tertiary centers, and I see this in my own group, they don't often follow up to find out that patient unfortunately died in the interim. They're still considered alive even though they're not. You have to be very careful about that. Whereas if it's my own patients, it's an accurate representation of their outcome. I'm taking care of them. I know when they are doing well and when they aren't and when they finally pass away. It's much more accurate information than data generated at a tertiary center where they're not really taking care of them. All right. Well, thanks for taking my question. Yes, thank you so much for asking the question. Well, Dr. Berenson, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Sure. We are grateful for your great efforts and your dedication to treating myeloma, and we wish you continued success. Um, Dr. Berenson will be listed in our myeloma doctor directory shortly. If you would like to contact him directly, you can click on our myeloma specialist directory at the bottom of our homepage and search the directory for Dr. Berenson. You can send him a private message that will go straight to his clinic. So All thank right, you, everybody, Dr. enjoy Randy. their weekend. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Innovation in Myeloma on the Inpatient Myeloma Radio Show. Join us next Friday for another episode to learn more about how myeloma patients can help push faster towards a cure. 